non-theism is religion and spirituality for whom the existence of God is not the primary question. Mm. So we can practice this religion and this spirituality regardless of whether or not our God exists. The existence of God is not of the primary concern. So if God does not exist, we can still be Christian and value the traditions and rights and lessons of the Christian tradition. Yeah. If God does exist, that's fine. Basically, it is the belief that the categories of theism and atheism are both too limiting when it comes to spiritual practice. Welcome back to Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. And Matt, welcome back to the show. I'm so happy to still be here. I'm so happy to <laughs> still be here, too. We are here in Rock Candy Records, rec- recordings, records. What yeah, is okay. Rock Candy shorthand. Okay, we're here in Rock Candy <laughs> studio, and we are continuing our conversation about faith and doubt and the axioms of faith by Science Mike. So if you have not listened to the first episode, you'll be very lost. So definitely go back and listen to the first episode to catch up. Yes. Yeah. All right. So which which one are we on now? We- so the last one that we covered was sin. Okay. And the next next thing that they cover in the, or that Mike covers in the axiom of faith is the afterlife. Okay. So yeah, I'll read this one. The afterlife is at least the persistence of our physical matter in the ongoing life cycle on earth. The memes we pass on to others with our lives and the model of our unique neurological signature in the brains of those who knew us. Even if this is all the afterlife is, the consequences of our actions persist beyond our death and our ethical considerations must consider a timeline beyond our death. I love this. Yeah, I think that's pretty sweet. Yeah, I absolutely love this. Way to go, Mike. Yes. I mean, he'll probably never listen to this, but I think it's just, I think this helps so many people, and I'm sure he didn't come to this easily. I'm well, sure there was a lot of thought that went into this. What, yeah, and what he says is that he really developed this so that he can stay in his beloved Christian community. And so he really devised this for himself and, and then offered it to other people. Right. And, and actually his book... Finding God in the Waves, I highly recommend. And it kind of breaks down all of these axioms. It goes through all of these axioms and discusses yeah. them in at length. So the idea here for these axioms is that this is just the bare minimum. Now, you can go beyond these. You know, if you are a person of faith, you find that faith comes more easily to you yeah. than it does for someone like me. You can go beyond this into a more spiritual interpretation. Yeah. So this is just the very lowest bar of what <laughs> of of what it takes which is so I, I i don't know what it speaks to 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 me or to where i am in life but gosh i love this low bar <laughs> i love this low bar i need this low bar i know i know I, I i feel like i do too yeah i i like thinking of this as a as a really great sort of melding of here's the world that we live in and yes. here's here's like 
what some truths kind of written into the like everyone can see and attest to and that we all kind of yeah gravitate towards and have for millennia and then also kind of marrying it with hey there's something else other than science there is i think science points to something like we can't explain all of it yeah i just i think it's so important to not polarize the two it's very rare and valuable i think that that this set of axioms innately understands the need people have for both science and religious community Mm -hmm. Well put. And I just find that deeply, deeply refreshing. You know, there's kind of this ongoing debate as to whether people need religion, whether society can flourish without religion. And basically what I have come to personally is I do think society can be happy without religion. I personally don't want to live without it. Mm. And this document helps me to that end. And this idea of the afterlife as... My legacy after my consciousness, you know, I don't know what happens after I die. And I think that's been one of the the hardest parts about my deconstruction of faith. Sure. Is the acceptance that I don't know what happens after I die. And it is, in fact, very likely that nothing happens after I die, that my consciousness dissolves and that this thing that is Stephen will no longer exist mm-hmm. and that this I that is me, will no longer exist. When you have been raised to believe that you are immortal, essentially, you find yourself grieving for the loss of an eternity. Mm. That is a very, very, very big thing to grieve. You know, when you believe that- Absolutely. You know, when you believe that you're going to go off to heaven and live for eternity in the presence of Christ. And there's no way of knowing if- if you're grieving for the correct thing. Exactly. <laughs> you're, exactly. Simply, I think I think in your case, maybe it was- grieving for grieving for the loss of of an ideology or and being certainty. willing to let something go yeah yeah and just certainty. having to admit to yourself like i can't be certain i can't be certain and, and so you know one aspect of faith that i really hold on to is what is defined in in hebrews faith is the essence of things hoped for i can embrace that kind of faith you know i hope dearly hope that there is an afterlife i dearly hope that there is a a literal personal God. I dearly hope in the presence of the supernatural. I want to believe, to quote the X-Files, but I cannot go beyond the magisterium of science. I know that there are other people who can, and that's fine for them, but I personally can't. So this understanding of the afterlife offers me some consolation. Mm. This idea that life does still, in fact, extend beyond me, even if my consciousness might not, and that my legacy matters, and that our all of our legacies and what we choose, how we choose to live, that is enlightenment, that is salvation, and it move and it goes beyond yeah. our death. That I find a deeply comforting thought in the face of my existential crisis of whether or not there is an afterlife. I, you know, I think of all the aspects about my, my faith, my, my deconstruction of faith, this is maybe the hardest. Sure. But also, on the other hand, I think it has made this life more precious because I can't put off joy to the afterlife. Oh my gosh. How many experiences did you have where it was like you would just run into so many, or at least for me, just speaking from my own personal experience, there were so many people that I ran into and and they were in so many ways putting off their own joy or their own dreams or their own ambitions or their own just engaging with life, yes. thinking that somehow 
like that was a spiritual discipline of theirs that they should, that was part of what they would call denying themselves and taking up their cross. And it's like, you're not living yes. here. Like you're not enjoying it's a great earth. You're not enjoying people. You're not giving of yourself to people. You, you've decided that all of the, everything in earth is bad or that most things on earth are bad, that you somehow have a monopoly on what's good, that your understanding of it is the end all be all. You've resigned yourself to being miserable here exactly. because you can't reconcile things within yourself. So you just decide to be miserable and that, and you think that when you get to heaven, it's somehow, all work somehow out. that misery will be lifted. And it's such a waste. It's such a terrible waste. <clears throat> and you know, you're only going to be 30 once and, and kind of the converse of this that I have found, and this is a really, really abstract concept. And I, and I try to communicate this whenever I teach yoga. I'm also a yoga teacher. That's one of the other parts of my life. And, yeah. and so part of my job as a yoga teacher is to bring people into these kind of crazy, psychedelic, mystical experiences through <laughs> meditation. I mean, that's my job. And, and mushrooms. And well, hmm, no, not quite. <laughs> but um, <laughs> don't lie, Stephen. Um, <clears throat> When you are deep in a meditation practice, in a mindfulness meditation practice or mm. a yoga practice, there's this extraordinary thing that happens where your thoughts, your feelings, your all the hundreds of thousands of words that are passing through your mind, they go quiet. Mm. And you discover that in this present moment, your thoughts actually keep you in this tiny box. Mm. And that when that box opens, when the when you allow those thoughts to just slowly die down and then it's all quiet, you discover just how vast and expansive the present moment is. Mm. And that in a way that I cannot describe, I've experienced this and it's just one of those things that defies explanation. <laughs> and, and my goal is always for my students to experience this, is that the present moment in and of itself becomes an eternity. Mm. And it expands out in all directions, like an endless yeah. sea. I've, I feel like I, that, that was something that I so admire about the Catholic Church. Yes. Um, that, you know, growing up in Southern Baptist culture, even just in like, you know, your quintessential Protestant culture that you have now, where it's like everything is so geared towards production and being loud and big. And even the theological rhetoric that gets used in worship music is so self-aggrandizing and, you know, like we're loud, we're big, we're here, we're worshiping. It's all about us, 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 us. And I feel like one of the things that the Catholic Church did really well was teach me the importance of being quiet. Exactly. That it, there's a complete emphasis on the the absence of distraction and the, exactly. the absence of like <laughs> having to yeah. be loud to prove your worth and, um, or, or to participate and to just simply be with yourself and to be connected with what that feels like, like know where exactly. your baseline is. And, you know, I, I think when we consider that the afterlife may or may not exist that forces us into a religion of the present moment and that i feel like is maybe the best description of my faith and my religion is it is it's a religion of fully experiencing this present moment and being mindful and being present and just you know through the years of being a yoga teacher and a meditation teacher i've discovered a different kind of eternity mm-hmm. and that eternity is the present moment that extends out in all directions and it's vast and what confines us are 
thoughts, the confining thoughts and beliefs about ourselves. Right. And, you know, I feel like I'm I'm going very Oprah all of a sudden. But <laughs> I, I, think it, I think it makes perfect sense in but, this context. But yeah. in this context, you know, this is, you know, this idea of salvation, of letting go of the possibility that there is eternal salvation requires that we find salvation in the present moment. I like to call that enlightenment. You know, when I when I teach, I I call that enlightenment. Enlightenment being the the study and understanding the study of and the understanding that we are alive. Right. And it's ultimately, meditation is ultimately the study of what it's like to be alive. Mm. And that's it. Yeah. In this present moment. And, and and the idea that our actions and values and ideas have consequences beyond ourselves. I, I just find that a deeply comforting notion. Yeah. So. I love that. Let's move on to the next point. Salvation is at least the means by which humanity overcomes sin to produce human flourishing. Mm-hmm. Even if this is all salvation is, spiritual and religious actions and beliefs that promote salvation are good for humankind. So so in essence, the, uh, spiritual or, or religious actions and beliefs that promote the overcoming of sin yes. are ultimately good for all mankind. Absolutely, yeah. exactly. And, and so we were kind of talking about both of these points in our previous discussion of salvation. I Actually, I... I I got the two confused in my head, and so I was talking about this one as well as the sin one. Um, <laughs> so, nice. yeah, yeah, you know, I think the challenge for us is on a on a on a globe that has a population of eight billion people, close to eight billion people, and growing and growing, <laughs> eight billion served. You know, by by two thousand fifty, yeah, there's supposed to be about ten billion, mm. and how is it with how are we supposed to respond to the better angels of our nature with a population that huge and all of the dynamics involved in that i mean it really is the difference between life and death yeah for us and so i see this as as an issue of this of a species uh, you know our salvation as a species is whether or not we can overcome our tribal instincts right whether or not we can overcome those petty differences and work together to create something beautiful and meaningful and overcoming the lower brain exactly overcoming the lower brain yeah and so i think this speaks to us personally as individuals, how we overcome our lower brain just in daily life, our innate biases, but also it, it speaks to salvation for the species. I feel like there are many, many religions that kind of center around this idea yes. of there's a difference in humanity and in the rest of a lot of mammals, and it's the higher brain. Yes. And it's rectifying those two and figuring out where you live. It's the whole idea of dual nature that gets talked about in the Bible, you know, where it's like you are reborn with a new nature. You are, you're some, like, this is the thing that makes you different is that you contemplate mysteries of the universe and mysteries about yourself and where you fit in and where your responsibility lies and in marrying the ideas of what's good for you versus what's good for others. And what are some great constructs to be able to make those decisions? accurately. Yes. <laughs> what are some baselines that you can kind of fall back to? Yeah. I, I've always had such a hard time with salvation because I've, the older that I've gotten, the more I feel this need to, to be saved from not something externally, not, yes. not hell, not, but from yourself, but from myself. Absolutely. I feel Me like too. that's where, 
that's where it's kind of going back to the whole like lower brain, higher brain thing. Mm -hmm. I I need to be saved from my lower brain. Yes. Like maybe the best way of of putting that. And it's that lower brain that creates hell, a, Mm. a current hell, you know? And, and so, you know, I find all of this very helpful as metaphors for life, as inner guiding metaphors yeah. and and myths. And, you know, when I say myth, I think we do ourselves a deep disservice by simply saying that a myth is something that is untrue. I think that's a wrong perspective of myth. I think, I, I think of it as a guiding principle. Exactly. It's a guiding story. It's a guiding principle that is true on another level. And so the idea of hell is real to me. You know, when I had my psychotic break and I was terrified of ceiling fans, <laughs> that... Totally understand. <laughs> yep. That that was hell. Yeah. That was hell for me, where I felt like my mind was being defragged. I mean, I felt like yeah. my mind itself was just shattered. Absolutely. And, you know, that was hell. And depression and anxiety and the ideologies that these worldviews that I think a fundamentalist worldview creates is hell. It is hell on earth. And then finding salvation from those ideologies, from that hell, is a powerful thing. So that I, I find that a helpful way of viewing heaven and hell. I always I always have found it a really hard thing to reconcile in my mind this idea that somehow if you do subscribe to Christianity or to truth that's found in the Bible or to the Protestant teaching of what hell is, how do you make that make sense with a God who desires that all life flourish? Exactly. It doesn't entirely make sense to me. And the more that I kind of studied the Bible, the more I saw a lot of other cultures be assimilated into the idea of yes. hell and and kind of this recurring theme throughout the creation of the Bible. And I know that there's there are people listening that are way smarter about this than I am. And they're like, Matt's totally off base. I kind Somebody of feel don't like just about everyone <clears throat> who listens to this show is way smarter than I am. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I feel like whenever, like throughout history, what has made Christianity so powerful is that many times I feel like when they came up against different cultures or cultural beliefs that were really hard to shake out of a specific group of people, they assimilated it. They made it an easier pill to swallow and then ultimately kind of encroached on that and adopted those ideas much maybe much in the same way that our idea of christmas is today absolutely um we we do not celebrate the same christmas that where christmas started there's no such thing as as pure in right in history there's there's no such thing as as long as humans are involved i don't think there ever will be you know this idea of a pure christianity that is pure truth or purely from god and is not influenced by other pagan cultures is just total bullshit i think it's really hard for somebody to just say that they know i mean at this point in human like so much human history is past and so christianity's changed and changed hands so many times and has caused so much suffering and the the people in charge of that have carried Christianity throughout history are complicated people. The Bible's really complicated. The people that yes. end up in the Bible are complicated. And to yes. say somehow that Christianity now and our place in it, our role in it, is also uncomp- is is uncomplicated. I don't think that's true. I, oh, I, I think it I think it requires it requires thought. It requires you thinking. <laughs> and it requires cognitive dissonance. Yeah. And most people I feel like are not 
given the tools by the church. Or objectivity to some degree. Yes, objectivity and and a level of nuance that I think the church just in many ways does not provide people. Yeah. And uh, speaking of salvation and by extension, heaven and hell, here's something that I have been thinking about. There, <laughs> get ready. Get ready. <laughs> Is it better to believe that life simply ends, that consciousness just ends after we die, or that a few of us will celebrate salvation in heaven for all eternity, and then the rest of humanity will live in tortured anguish in cosmic gas chambers. God, what a great question! For, for, the, for the rest of, literally the rest of eternity. What is better? What is more merciful? What is a better worldview? What, what is a worldview that actually gives greater life and meaning? Because more and more, I'm skewing towards it. If those are my only two choices, now of course we aren't considering universalism, which is also an option where sure. everyone is drawn into the presence of God. We also aren't considering annihilationism, which is that uh, the damned are extinguished, that their spirits, their consciousness is extinguished forever, yeah. and they just are stifled. So those are two possibilities that we are not considering. But, you know, if we are offered atheism versus fundamentalist Protestant Christianity, which, (laughs) you know, in America, if our two worldviews are, if it's the choice between believing that consciousness ends at death or that a few of us are going to celebrate for all eternity in blissful union with God, but then the rest of humanity is going to suffer horribly, horrifically in cosmic gas chambers for all reality or for all eternity, but just fuck them, you know, who cares? Yeah. I think that the atheistic worldview and its consequences on humanity are more compassionate, mm. more kind, and more human, more pro-human. See, that's interesting because I think both of them have the exact same potential for the placebo effect, Mm. where it's like Christians want to believe so badly that they're right, and this gives them a placebo of always being able to believe that and just saying like, cool, like I'm right, you're wrong, and at the end of all things, even though I haven't been there or seen it, I ultimately come out on top. Yes. And I ultimately, no matter what squabble we got into here on earth, I will end up here. And if you disagree with me, you end up there. I win, you lose. And with atheists, I think I think a lot of times they have a hard time rectifying, you know, what, what people say are basic truths about Christianity and about Christ. And then also, you know, the belief within Christianity that somehow you end up in hell. Yes. Uh, at the end of all things. And maybe the placebo for them is like being able to disregard all of that. Yes. When at the end of the day, we really don't know. So either yes. decision has the same potential to kind of have the same effect on each other. Mm. We're both kind of just trying to live with the other. Yes. <laughs> like while we're here. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that's just something that that <clears throat> I have been puzzling about. I don't think ideas are arbitrary. You know, I think that what we believe about ourselves and about God and the world actually have consequences on how we live our lives and how we treat others. Mm. And so if I believe that a huge portion of humanity is going to burn in hell for all eternity because they are cast out of the presence of God, yeah, that suddenly creates a horrifying reality, the likes of which is worse than any Lovecraftian nightmare that any... <laughs> 
horror <laughs> author could ever come up with. I mean, that's an absolute unmitigated nightmare. But if yeah. this life is all we have, then that means that death is not just a rite of passage. Mm. That means that this is the one life we've got to make it right. That you're still responsible for that how you treat people. That we are here. responsible for. And everyone should have an equal shot at it. And, and so I think maybe the consequences of an atheistic life can have a better effect on human flourishing because it requires us to make the most of it. It, it requires <laughs> us to make the most of it and to understand that we're all in this brief blip of a moment together and we had better make it work. Yeah. And I also think that there are people that subscribe to Christianity in droves who do subscribe to many Christian tenets and think critically about whether or not there actually is a hell. And and oh, that maybe ha and have completely <clears throat> sorry different different views about what that is or about what they would coin as separation from God. Yes, looks like, and ultimately it's up to to humans to decide to, to, to yeah, figure out or what that, that would is. be their belief. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I think it could kind of go both ways. Absolutely. I, I feel like Christianity now is at a place where people are th are putting so many of the dots together publicly and in groups and they're kind of tribalizing and that protestantism as we know it is it just i don't see it necessarily in the future moving forward i feel like it, i feel like what you were saying earlier in the last podcast that there is there's a shifting of of what's happening within christianity that it is kind of changing <clears throat> and maybe christianity as we know it really is dying yeah like really will just not exist and the people that decide to hang on to it yeah, maybe end up, you know, kind of being being the loud, being the louder side of the conversation. Well, you know, I think that this is a good time to to bring up what I think is an impossible deal for many religious people like myself sure. to strike, which is, you know, I, I feel like the rational atheistic world. Now, I have many atheists who listen to the show and. If I am totally mischaracterizing the the new atheist movement, I apologize. This is totally my subjective experience of the new atheist moment, and I accept that I'm I am probably reading them wrong. But this is my interpretation: is that the atheist movement comes to us and says, "Here are the riches of science, yeah, and all that science offers us." But in order to embrace it, you must let go of your beloved religion. Hmm. And that is an impossible deal for sure. many people. Yep. You know, I, I don't think we live in a utopian world where we can move beyond religion. I just don't think that that's a possibility. You know, maybe in certain societies, yes. I, you know, certain Scandinavian societies have, and they're flourishing. <laughs> you know, it, if you work at IKEA, if you work at IKEA, <laughs> congratulations, you're in a you're in a Scandinavian wonderland. You probably understand more about the mysteries of the universe than than we do. Yes, good point. And they um, probably involve Alan Wrenches. <laughs> <laughs> The whole universe is shaped actually like an Allen wrench. <laughs> Planets are put together this way. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, certain societies can flourish yeah. without religion, but globally, as just as the human species, can we actually move beyond religion? And what about those of us for who, who are deeply religious, like myself, for whom this isn't just a community 
It's who we are. It's who I am. Well, I, I think it's interesting you bring that up because throughout history, there have also been these really critical moments where people would over, gosh, what, what's, what's the best way of putting this? They would marry science and like what we're doing right now is, say, is saying we're becoming so comfortable with this marriage of science and religion and having them both inform one another. But it's my understanding that one of the last times that happened was when you had, you know, science that you couldn't explain in any other way because science hadn't advanced to the point to being of able to explain all the facets filling of it. In so, the gaps. so all in of a sudden gaps. it's basically alchemy. Yes. You know, and it is like, how do we explain science is magic. Yes. And so the only way we have of explaining magic, which is something we don't understand is by bringing our construct of how we do understand things that we don't understand, which would be religion. Yes. So it sounds like <clears> you're <throat> talking about the God in the gaps where sure. when we, when we get to a point where we don't understand the world, you know, when we get to a problem that doesn't make sense to us scientifically, yeah, that's when we insert God or spirituality. Yeah. And, you know, that is something that we've done through history. You know, I think it does hinder scientific progress because it, it keeps us from asking those important questions. But that isn't to say that we also can't be spiritual simultaneously. You know, that isn't to say that we can't be religious and can't be spiritual and scientific. Well, yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking specifically in, uh, in the cases of scientists that were basically, you know, metaphorically or sometimes actually crucified for scientific advancement yes. <clears throat> by the Christian community. Yes. Who had no way of explaining what was going on. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. When we are confronted with this impossible deal yeah. of here are all the riches of science, but you have to let go of your faith. I don't think we're ever going to get to a utopia where people can easily make that decision. And I sure. think the future, I think the way forward for religion is non-theistic religion. And now I don't mean non-theistic as atheistic. Okay, Nostradamus, but, making some predictions there. <laughs> <laughs> this is just my pretentious prediction. No, I, I do think um, that's interesting. I think I, I think that by uh, all accounts, like that's not an ignorant assumption. Yeah, like there, it does I, feel like the pendulum is swinging. I think the pendulum is swinging. You know, I think people like Science Mike are predicting this. You know, I, I think people like Science Mike and movements like the Satanic Temple, which we can talk about later if you want to, <laughs> are demonstrating that at least in certain corners of the West, we're going to be moving into non-theistic religion where people don't have to make the choice between this false binary, between religion and atheism. Now, mm -hmm. let me just define what non-theism is. Non-theism is religion and spirituality for whom the existence of God is not the primary question. Mm. So we can practice this religion and this spirituality regardless of whether or not our God exists. The existence of God is not of the primary concern. So if God does not exist, we can still be Christian and value the traditions and rights and lessons of the Christian tradition. Yeah. If God does exist, that's fine. Basically, it is the belief that the categories of theism and atheism are both too limiting when it comes to spiritual practice. Atheism is a statement of what you are not. Atheism is a statement of it, it's it's a negative statement. Non-theism basically allows a space for you to say what you are. 
Sure. If that makes sense. Yeah. And it's so, a safe space. Yes, it, it's a safe space. I feel like that's what you're that's what you're actually getting at. Is yes. that is that for all of us to be able to fit at the table and to speak civilly within our culture? Yes. That that I, it's something like this kind of must exist something, for us to all a, kind of be together. A space like this where the existence of God is not the primary concern in order for our religion to function. Because there are going to be people, like Carrie Poppy said, for whom God is an outer truth and God is an inner truth. I think we might be moving into an era where, in order for religion to exist in this scientific age, there's going to have to be that progress from God as an outer truth to God as an inner truth in order for it to survive in a healthy way. Mm. And so what I want to see, and I know that many people and many of my listeners just won't be able to accept this. I know that a lot of people have been disappointed with me because of this, but I think this has been the case for me yeah, and for a lot of other people, for people who want to maintain their healthy religion while also embracing all the riches of science, they're going to have to move into an externally agnostic attitude, you know, belief. Right with an internal guiding myth, and that is essentially a non-theistic religion or an agnostic religion. My hope is to help facilitate that process. Now, I've been having really difficult conversations lately about this because, you know, I've been writing about it. I've been talking about it. And several times, either very close friends or family members have just sat down with me. And, you know, one person was like, you know, Stephen, you used to you used to say all the time, well, God said this in prayer to me. God said, you know, God spoke this to me. You know what I'm saying? You know how in in evangelical culture, they put a real emphasis on hearing God. On magic. On magic, you know, and and I believed it. And I believed that I heard the voice of God and there was a source of profound comfort. And what I know now is that the evangelical world trains us to interpret out certain aspects of our own thoughts as coming from outside of us. When when you feel like you've reached yeah sorry when you've reached a um, morally superior thought that surprises even you <laughs> that it came from God it somehow must have come from God and maybe not yeah <laughs> not and, and, from you just kind of thinking through the situation and, and so you know evangelicalism essentially trains us to to see certain thoughts as coming from beyond us. And and I believed that. And so, you know, I would have these conversations with people about, you know, here's what God told me. Here's how God has led me. And Which I, took, I feel like that's so dangerous. It is. That, that, it is very, very dangerous. that is so dangerous. It is very dangerous. And there are ways in which it led me down some very dangerous paths, which I won't get into now, but, but it did, you know, fuck up some parts of my life. But, sure. you, know, you know, this friend of mine, she was basically like, you know, you don't, you don't do that anymore. And why is that? You know, just how is your relationship with God? Well, because you're backslidden, Stephen. Because I'm backslidden, okay? exactly. I don't know if you can get and, back up the slide. I mean, you're yeah. so far down. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So she was able to accept where I was, but it was very hard for her. And and so, you know, I've had some very difficult conversations with people, but yeah. it's where I am and I... And, you know, I, I, I think a lot of the atheists will be unhappy with me because I still value religion or um, anti-religious people will be unhappy with me. And especially Christians tend to be unhappy because I can no longer affirm kind of these core aspects of the faith. Sure. So, you know, it's been difficult, but m- my very 
uh, myopic and pretentious view is that maybe, just maybe, this kind of agnosticism and religion is the way forward for Western religion to survive. And that's just my opinion. Shall we move on? Yeah, so what's your, <laughs> what's your opinion about Jesus? Because Mike's, <laughs> in yes. his axiom of faith, is that Jesus is at least a man so connected to God that he was called the Son of God, and the largest religious movement in human history is centered around his teachings. Even if this is all Jesus is, following his teachings can promote peace, empathy, and genuine morality. I think that's great. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. Now, there are... I, I especially appreciate his use of the word can, <laughs> right? <laughs> Even if this is all Jesus is following his teachings, can promote peace, empathy, and genuine morality. And and I appreciate that nuance. Because, yeah, because the elephant in the room is that all, all the people who follow Christ's teachings who are dicks. Yeah, who, who brought <laughs> who, Trump into yeah, office. Who, you just like can't, you can't marry those those two things together, or or at least I have a really hard time with it. Yeah, yeah, I do too. and. You know, one thing, though, that he does hit on, and I know we've talked about this before, is that ideas do have consequences. Ideas are not arbitrary. And ideas do, in fact, shape how you respond to other people. And so, you know, I watch people take seriously, I watch certain Christians in my life take seriously the commands of Christ. And it does actually create good fruit. It does actually create a better world. The love your neighbor as yourself. The, it's really hard to go wrong with that one. <laughs> it's really hard to go wrong with <laughs> you that have one. To try really the, hard. The welcoming the stranger. When you accept the one of the least of these, when you serve one of the least of these, you are serving yeah. Christ. You know all of that stuff. As a gay person who's kind of on on the periphery of things, I feel like I have a pretty good perspective of of how Christians actually respond. And there are some who respond very badly, but then there are others who take these teachings seriously enough to serve a gay person as if they were serving Christ, regardless of what they believe about me as yeah. a gay person. And, and so that I do think is important. And these ideas do matter and do have consequences in life. And, and so in, in a lot of ways, I think these beliefs about who Christ is and how he teaches us to care for other people and react to other people, it, it can mediate some of the ugliness in Christianity. There is that huge emphasis on apologetics. And what's that script, that, that scripture, I forget which one, in one of the epistles where he says, you know, whenever you're confronted, be prepared to have an answer for your faith. Yeah. You know, and that was hammered into us in youth group and Christian school and Absolutely. college. That was hammered into us. You have to have a clear and concise and powerful defense of why you believe what you believe. And um, I'm beyond that now. Nothing could interest me less. I feel like truth needs no defense. <laughs> because what's the point of defending truth? Mm. If truth is as powerful as you say it is, then it's powerful enough to defend itself. Exactly. That we'll, then we'll be fighting it and ultimately bring about our own demise mm -hmm. by not acknowledging it. Yes. And I feel like, yeah, <laughs> I feel like I, I was having so many thoughts at one time, mm. just kind of come, come flooding in through all of this, like all the experiences of, of different things and like people trying to explain to me who God was and then that constantly being, you know, t torn apart and yeah, 
So I, I think I really, I think I really agree with this yeah. baseline of, of who Jesus is in, in the context of Christianity. Yes, absolutely. The Holy Spirit is at least the psychological and neurological components of God that allow God to be experienced as a personal force or agent. Even if this is all the Holy Spirit is, God is more relatable and neurologically actionable when experienced this way. Hmm. Okay, so I think basically what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Christianity, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, kind of God on earth moving among us. I, I think this understanding of the Holy Spirit is basically the experience of God neurologically is kind of how I understand it. Or is it a literary device? I think it is for, a literary for device. For us explaining the movement of God in our daily lives. You know, and I think this is the part that still confuses people about my experience of faith, is that even expressing all of the questions and doubts and agnosticism that we've been discussing for the past two shows, yeah, I still experience the person of God. Mm. I still, you know, when I am at church or when I am praying from the Book of Common Prayer, I still have that experience of the Holy Spirit being with me, that feeling of warmth and presence. And it's a powerful experience. And now I know that it is probably a psychological phenomenon. I know that it's probably in my head. But I, I think in this modern age, we have really denigrated play and fantasy. In the midst of the Harry Potter franchise. In the midst of We the, have somehow still well, accomplished this. Well, and, and you know, I was actually just about to bring up Harry Potter, <laughs> where one of my favorite lines from that series yeah. is at the very end, and it's when Harry has been killed, spoilers, and... <laughs> <laughs> if you still haven't seen Harry Potter yet, then you have geez, other Louise, you've got you problems, have other issues. And Harry is having a vision in King's Cross Station. Yeah. And Dumbledore is there and he's having this final conversation with Dumbledore and at one point he asks Dumbledore, "Is this all happening in my head?" And Dumbledore says, "Of course it's all happening in your head. That doesn't mean it isn't real." Yeah. This idea that just because something is happening psychologically or within our head, this idea that it is therefore not significant or meaningful is, I think, one of the great casualties of our modern age. One of the people who's really helped me sort through this is Joseph Laycock. And I had him recently on the show several weeks ago to talk about his book, Dangerous Games. And what he says is that we ha- we live with different frames of meaning. We live with these different frames of worlds. We live with multiple worlds. There is the scientific world. The Marvel Universe is a world. The worlds that we go into in school, in literature. Derivative realities. Derivative realities, exactly. And he says, these are significant. These are powerful. Religion is one of these worlds. Now, all of these worlds, a lot of them derive from the innate human need to play to role play, to explore and experience other worlds through play. Mm -hmm. And he says, instead of denigrating play, we need to take play very seriously. Yeah, Play is a very serious thing. And it, in fact, 
transforms our lives. And instead of it just being not true, it's rather an annex to reality. Yeah, It's a space into which you can enter out of profane time into a sacred space and have a transformative experience. But and is it there, actually is there, changes you. Is there like a truth to what you're saying, though, that transcends just uh, the anecdotal sort of Harry at King's Cross? Yes. Where, you know, like Dumbledore is, is saying to Harry, like, of course, here it's all happening in your head. And and maybe the takeaway from that being that, how you know, how does that make it less important? But then to a lot of people who immerse themselves into a derivative reality so much so that it compromises their involvement in other realities. Mm. Murderers. That's what, <laughs> Psychopaths. That's what uh, Joseph Laycock calls right. corrupted play. Mm. And corrupted play is when the boundaries between worlds starts to crumble. Right. Corrupted play is actually what fundamentalist Christians do, mm. where during the satanic panic, their visions of their religious world bled into legislation, bled into reality, mm. and they could no longer tell the difference between worlds. Mm. Now, this is why I think these different frames of meaning are so important. Why we need to be aware of them is that when we collapse everything down to one frame of meaning, we tend to do this with the materialist world in our current age, where we collapse all worlds down to scientific truth or literal truth. And if something isn't true literally, then it isn't true at all and it has no significance. Fuck. <laughs> Alvin, Texas is calling me. It's got to be a telemarketer. Jehovah's Witness Watchtower Society. They never want to talk to me when I answer <laughs> like that. Um, I'll put my phone on Do Not Disturb. Okay. What happens is when we demand that all all things, all realities be similar in the same way, that they be literally true, when there's that collapse of meaning into a single frame of meaning, that is when corrupted play happens. That is when we can no longer distinguish between worlds. And so this has been incredibly helpful for me, where Joseph Laycock has basically reading his book and having him on the show, and I'm really hoping to have him on again, has given me permission. Yeah. It's given me permission to say these mythic religious worlds and the experiences of God that I have in those spaces are not mere flights of fancy. Mm. They actually change me. And I come out of those spaces literally a changed person, a different person. It affects your behavior it in every other world. Exactly. And so, you know, I can look at the liturgy as... I can look at liturgy as kind of an alternative annex of reality where you enter into that space out of profane time into sacred time and it transforms you. Then you come out of it as a different person. And that vision of religion is deeply powerful to me. This idea that if it's just in my head, it doesn't mean anything. You know, I think that that final quote was J.K. Rowling's parting wisdom to her readers about her the entire experience that we've had in her Harry Potter world, where basically what she was saying was, in a certain way, this world is actually real because it has changed who you are. That's, <laughs> that, those are her final and parting words. And if it's not real enough in your head, here's $5 off a ticket to the actual 
Wizarding yes. World of Harry Potter. World of- <laughs> yes. <laughs> she has many reasons for wanting you to believe uh, that her world is real enough to visit. At, exactly. Yeah. A bridging of the world. Does that, does that all make sense? I, no, I, yeah, I, I, don't I think know, it totally makes sense. I don't know how well I'm communicating all of this. And so an aspect of this for me is I have found that in order to nurture my Christian world, yeah. I have to add on other worlds. I find it easier to be a Christian when I am a Buddhist. I find it easier to be a Christian when I add on these other worlds that also inform my life. Does that make sense? I think humans have a propensity for being drawn to hyper-realities. Yes. We love movies. We love narrative. We love stories. We love characters that transcend our actual reality. We love ones that compromise those boundaries. Yes. Um, and that make the make the, our play worlds, our play realities fun to be in. Yes. And I feel like we gravitate towards that. I think a lot of that stuff, a, a lot of what you're saying makes perfect sense. Mm. And I think it's, I think it's healthy. <laughs> Like to to a certain degree. The the goal is to be able to walk between worlds consciously and to be aware of the worlds when we are in them. Yeah. You know, and if we aren't aware of these frames of meaning. Now, first of all, it's important to realize that these different frames of meaning have actually been understood by religions and cultures for a long time. And our recent collapse of meaning is kind of a a phenomenon of the Enlightenment, where the Christian world was responding to the scientific revolution, which is fantastic. Let's not demean the advent of science in any way. Like, that's a great, wonderful thing. But in response to it, Christianity responded in the West by trying to frame their religion in only in the exact same frame of meaning, only in scientific terms. So now out of this, you get apologetics, you get the case for Christ, you get answers in Genesis, you, you, get, these, <laughs> you get these organizations and this concept of Christianity that collapses all of its frames of meaning from the mythic to the literal, all the way down, it pancakes it all the way down into the literal. I feel like it makes it boring. It makes it boring. And and this is deeply tied to a literal interpretation of scripture. You know, if scripture isn't literal, then it has no meaning. For, well, first of all, you have to decide that scripture is literal. Yes. You have to make an assumption about it. Yes. For, for, for yourself. And then after you do that, then you have to fit all of this information into that box that you've made yes. for scripture and, and to make an, it make sense. And then you get upset. And it's an impossible challenge. It's an impossible challenge because the Bible is just so huge and so complex, it it won't fit into that. But this is really a very recent idea. The Bible also bears a striking resemblance, like what you were saying earlier, to fantasy. Yes. Looking at it from a literary standpoint, the Bible really does take place in a fantastical world. Exactly. And and it's it's transcribed as, as... actual or maybe in some cases like literal history. Yes. And that's that's its intent, but there the world that is talked about in the Bible does not match the world with, that we with live the in. reality that we live in. So what you were saying earlier about being able to move between the worlds exactly. and having them inform the other that one is no more, you know, 
Like, do you really believe that that Jonah was eaten by a fish and survived in that fish and then was spit up miles and miles inland and somehow ended up there in the town he's supposed to be in? Does it matter? Exactly. Does exactly. it matter if it really happened or not? Like, is it's, that is that going to be the thing? Like, you read some <laughs> story and, and, about you know, a fantastic man and, and a fish? And I won't say that that story is archetypally true in the same way to everyone. Sure. But that story is significant. And that story, depending on how we engage with it, changes us. You, you know, and so that... that yeah, is, like, do you walk away from it arguing the physical limitations of a man and a fish? Exactly. Or do you walk away from it... Saying, you know, I've had a time in my life where I knew I should have done something. Yes. And I was fleeing from... And I was running from a truth. I was fleeing from justice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's it. Exactly. So I understand that for a lot of people, what we're talking about won't work. Mm. I, I get that. You know, I, I understand that for a lot of Christians listening, this causes a lot of cognitive dissonance and they just can't go there because this kind of innately requires a sliding on the Apostles' Creed, you know, where you're going to say the creeds and just not believe them or believe them <laughs> as myth, you know. Oh, I don't believe in a literal hell, so geez, and I don't really believe that people can rise from the dead. And so that whole part about Jesus rising from the dead, which is kind of central to the faith, I don't believe that literally happened, or I don't have enough proof that that happened. Well, okay, this is not going to work for a lot of Christians. Sure. And that's okay. But this is what I need in order to make my faith work. Mm. And I offer it to other people who are in a similar place. And, you know, you can join me on this fabulous heretical journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I I'm at a place where it's all it's all up in the air. I think because I really believe in truth. I believe that I'm not truth and that I'm going to get a lot of it wrong. Yes. And that we're we're all never going to get it completely right. Yes. And I don't know if there's any way for me to know while I'm in this reality. <laughs> right. I think that I think that my hyper reality, I think that hyper realities do or derivative realities inform your Absolutely. understanding of your actual reality. We have the church next on the axiom of faith. We have the faith. church yeah. and then the Bible coming up next. Mm -hmm. So it says that the church is at least the global community of people who choose to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. Even if this is all the church is, the church is still the largest body of spiritual scholarship, community, and faith practice in the world. And this is why I can consider myself still part of the church is this definition of church mm. right here. You know, the idea of the church being the literal bride of Christ, that, you know, all of the mythology around the church and its relationship to Christ, her relationship to Christ, I find that difficult sometimes. But when presented with this definition of church, I'm right there with it. Have you ever had people come up to you and kind of like pity you when they find out that you're not part of a church body? All the fucking time. Or a church group. Um, Do you go to church? Regularly? No. Okay. Neither do I. <laughs> Lately, I you know, I've been plugged into a an Episcopalian church and it's just wonderful. It's a bunch of crazy liberal old people who love gays. It's a fantastic place. And I'm not able to go as often as I would like because I work so much. But you know, I'm teaching yoga there. I'm leading their contemplative yoga service. And it's so funny the relief that I see on people's faces when I tell them that I'm going to an Episcopal church. It's like, oh, thank God. Thank God. Thank God he's finally in a church. You know, it's probably a liberal heathen church, but thank God he's at least in a church. Like a church somehow 
has that monopoly we were talking about on truth that that yes. only good things come from everyone congregating together under this under this pretense whatever that feeling is inside of you that you know i was taught growing up that to be a good christian you should want to be a part you know don't don't neglect getting together with your brothers and sisters and don't neglect the gathering together yes and breaking of bread and and all of those different things that christians would say in their christianese and I understand church, but I what I understand church to be is a community. Yes. In the same way that it takes a tribe to survive. Yes. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes like it, it just it just feels like so much more of an innate human construct that shouldn't be neglected if human flourishing is the point yes. of being alive. <laughs> you know, there's there's also just the added aspect that if we want to have a mystical experience and if we want to build the neural God network, as Science Mike calls it in his book, mm. if we want to build that network, the best way to do it is to be around other people who are, are like-minded. Doing, who are like-minded and yeah. doing similar things. And so there's just the very pragmatic aspect of it where if we want to have these mystical experiences, if we want to maintain that neural network in which God is important to us, then we need to maintain that connection to those people because that's one of the best ways to maintain that network. And so there's just that very pragmatic aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, I have friends like you and we have a a ton of friends who still subscribe to Christianity and we have these kinds of conversations all the time. And to me, I don't feel like I've ever lived in the absence of community and whenever I felt like I needed it, I would seek it out you or find, find it, it or, exactly. or there, you know, the community would come to me cause they knew cause, cause I, it was proof that I was part of a community. They would know that I was struggling with something and reach out to me to provide, I don't know, yeah. more of a neural network of support exactly. for that thing. And so I've never, I've never felt a calling inside of me or guilt inside of me that like, Oh my God, you're not going to church. Yes. Somehow. Me like, neither. Yeah. Me neither. I've always felt supported and I've always felt surrounded by Christianity. And and honestly, what draws me to church isn't the community. I already have that. What draws me to high church liturgy is something that Protestant churches tend not to have, and that is a gorgeous liturgy. I think that there is also an innate neurological benefit of ritual and beautiful ritual and poetry and gorgeous music and movement and action. That stuff is why I actually go to church. I don't go to it to talk to the people. Honestly, I only socialize when I'm getting paid. I, <laughs> I do. <laughs> that is not true. I socialize one-on-one. Yeah. You know, I do great in groups, but I already work at a grocery store. I run a fucking fair, basically, <laughs> at work. And so if you want me to show up at a party, you got to pay me for that shit. So I don't go to church to talk to people. I don't like large groups. I don't go to church to connect with people, honestly. I, I go like, to church for ritual. And it's that yeah. ritual that honestly is missing from a lot of evangelical churches. A, a couple of times a year, I feel like I'll get an inkling or... Someone will invite me repeatedly to the point of annoyance. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> to come to come to their church and try it out and and I'll and I'll go and I'm so arrogant about it. I'm so burned and I'm so I don't know maybe just like set in my ways or just cynical about the experience that I, it's I have a hard time pulling myself out of it now. 
and just enjoying the beauty I, of what's happening around me because I've seen behind the curtain so often yes, that I know that most of what's happening I see as production. I see as this is you are you are trying to create, establish, and manipulate an emotional experience exactly. for another human being. And I don't know if there's... I don't know if there, I could, if I can find something sacred in that. Being the son of two ministers, oh my god, I'm sure you've seen it because I've seen the ugliness mm. of church politics, and there's a lot of ugliness there, and that just turned me off of church so much. Where seeing what goes on behind the curtain in church communities, all of the infighting, all of the ugliness, yeah, all of the egos, it disgusted me and made me deeply disillusioned. And I feel like I can't go to a church without being aware of that. And, right. and granted, you know, I there are some church communities where the hierarchy or the governance or whatever is healthier than in others. And I feel like, you know, the, the church I'm at now is is healthier and I can feel it. You know, I can feel that the leadership is actually really healthy and communicates really well. Mm. That's probably because they're all women, <laughs> if I'm honest. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> They're all women. It's it's run by it's a church run by women, and so there's a nurturing motherly aspect to that the church. That sounds great. It sounds oh, like you wonderful. go to church on the uh, on on the Wicker Man. <laughs> oh my God! Yes, that is exactly what my Episcopalian church is. That is that is precisely what it is. They're gonna you know cover me in bees and then put me in the. <laughs> okay, well let's move on. Let's... The, the last one is the Bible. Yes. Okay, now this one is the. I think the Bible is the hardest part mm-hmm. for me okay. for faith. That and hell and and salvation. Okay, the Bible is at least a collection of books and writings assembled by the church that chronicle a people group's experience with and understanding of God over thousands of years. Even if that is a comprehensive definition of the Bible, study of Scripture is warranted to understand our culture and the way in which people come to know God. I love this. Yeah. Because I think depending on your posture towards scripture, scripture can be a deeply shattering and traumatizing experience. Because if you are told that this is the infallible word of God, and then you read David praying for the infanticide of children by bashing their heads against walls, there is a cognitive dissonance there. And when you're told that scripture is infallible, that we have to read it literally, then suddenly we have to somehow explain away the genocide of entire people groups that take place in the Old Testament and still be able to sleep at night. To me, I feel like I come across stories like this in the Bible and even grew up with stories like that where they're just, again, some of them really do seem to exist in the fantasy world like in the fantastical worlds of the Bible where people are not subject to the laws of gravity, yes. <laughs> relativity, or, or they sort of transcend those boundaries. And or the sun stops in the sky and right. the orbit of the planets So stop. it really, <laughs> there have been times where I read the Bible and I think there are so many instances in the Bible where it would be really easy to make the argument that Something happened historically, and then through the lens of Christianity, people tried to explain it away Mm. in the same way that a scientific discovery happens or something happens scientifically that's not explainable by science at the time. Yes. And people attribute that spiritual meaning to it. A lot of these, like 
all the firstborn children being killed. Right. <laughs> In Egypt. <laughs> I have a particularly hard time with that. Exactly. Because I don't I don't feel like that's consistent with the nature or the character of what God is supposed to be, or even what the Bible says he is. And and I mean, let's be honest, the God of Scripture is a God envisioned by many, through many different time periods and perspectives. And so we might not even be reading about the same God. Right. What helps me read Scripture is the understanding that maybe this is actually about people. Mm. Maybe this is a book that is about people trying to understand their higher power. Mm. trying to understand who God is, and that God reflects them. Mm. And that is the only way I can read the Bible with a good conscience. Mm. That is the only way that I feel like I can read the Bible with integrity, because if I read it in any other way, then I find myself having to justify unjustifiable things, the rapes and murders and genocides and just horrifically cruel behavior But do you of know God. what? I think that it is stories like this in the Bible, and particularly in the Old Testament, that there's not enough discussion about within church and there's not enough context put on and there's not enough exploration into what the, what these stories are, where they came from, how they are, how they're situated contextually in culture. And I think that when your understanding of the Bible stops there and you see these people put in positions of authority that behave so poorly and murder so many people and are yes. responsible for the death and and the anti-human flourishing, the antichrist, right? Of it, that happens in the Bible, and somehow they all fit into the narrative of Christ. I think that's how you end up with a lot of people who kind of secretly, without wanting to say anything out loud, can say, "I can totally see how someone like Donald Trump fits into office." It's very, and I can marry that with my understanding of Christ because I feel like I'm on the right side of this, and nothing bad will happen to me mm. because of my belief in this. It is significant that you bring that up. So there's a book called The Anointed by Randall J. Stevens and Carl W. Jibberson. So the idea behind this book, The Anointed, is that in the evangelical Christian world has this concept of the anointed, that the power of God descends upon you, mm. descends upon a leader, right. despite their education, right. their expertise, and their actions. Mm. And then they are empowered to lead no matter who or what they Magical are. thinking. Magical thinking. Now, the danger here is that when someone is anointed in this worldview, they, they don't become unanointed in, in, to the evangelicals. <laughs> and so this is why certain leaders and televangelists can embezzle, can steal, lie, have affairs, destroy lives, yep. and they're still seen as anointed. Right. And, and so that's what you're speaking to. But when I read scripture as just a book about people and mythic stories about people trying to understand who God is, Hmm. and written by people who are trying to understand God right, and their place in history. That's the only way I can read Scripture with a good conscience. Hmm. So that is it for this show. We have gotten a lot of really great questions. Oh, God, I need a break. <laughs> 
Yes. We so need we've, to take a breather. So we've gotten a lot of really great questions on Twitter about faith and doubt. And the questions are so wonderful. We're actually going to do a whole other episode just addressing those questions. So uh, you can look forward to that next week. I want to thank my team, Justin Bryant and Carson Green, for keeping me sane and helping me with all the technical parts of this show. The music is by The Jelly Rocks, Matt Langston, sitting here right next to me. By the way, Matt, ta-da, ta-da you have a new album out. <laughs> I do. It's called Rad Science. And uh, if you haven't heard it, gosh, you're missing you're out. Pro- <laughs> you're really missing out. It's awesome. I was telling Matt earlier, I never listen to music with lyrics, but his his music is the only music with lyrics that I listen to. And you can view that however however you want. You're so sweet, Stephen. Um, so in, instead of my regular outro, we're going to listen to one of his songs from his latest album. We will see you next week.
Cause I want 